Well, good morning. Uh, it is great to be with you all uh, this morning. My name is Johnny, if you don't know me already. Um, you've prob- most of you have probably at least seen me by now. This is, I- I've lost count of the number of times I've come up here uh, to preach, um, but uh, it's, it's a joy to be with you again. Uh, me and my family uh, for three years have been in Seattle, uh, and up until this last fall, we were working on a uh, church planting project um, to plant another PCA church in Seattle. That uh, fell through for uh, various reasons. Um, I'd be happy to tell more of the story later if you're interested. Uh, But uh, regardless, uh, over the last couple years at least, this church has been um, very faithful to support us prayerfully, even financially. And so I'm I'm really thankful for this congregation uh, and for you all and uh, it's a joy to bring the word this morning. Uh, Now to do that, uh, let's turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter one, and we're gonna be looking at verses one to 10 for the scripture reading, Uh, and and for the sermon we'll be focusing, uh, zeroing in really just on verses three to six. Um, So, uh, pay close attention to those verses, but we're going to read uh, all of verse, verses 1 to 10 uh, for the scripture reading. The book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. So uh, listen carefully. This is the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I'm just going to go ahead and read verse 11 as well, even though it's not printed in the bulletin. And continuing, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Let's, let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Lord, we thank you for the word, uh, the word written down for our instruction, for our encouragement, for our perseverance and assurance, and also for the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Father, full of grace and truth. And now through the Spirit, as you have poured out the Spirit on your church and on us through faith, would you allow us the, the gift of seeing Christ 
beholding Christ, worshiping Christ, being thankful for Christ, being thankful for the work of Christ in each other and in ourselves, help us to see clearly uh, and fill us with uh, the same kind of thanksgiving and praise that the Apostle Paul had. Um, Do that work in us, and on this last day of the year, assure us that you uh, are ours and we are yours. Uh, Work faith in our hearts, we pray. Through the word, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we often get letters uh, mailed to our house, and uh, they're addressed to us. The address is correct, and we, we, we take them in, we, we, we're flipping through our, our, our letters, and it, it, it's a very common occurrence these days to get a letter, uh, say from a bank or something, uh, promising a new promotional deal of some kind. So if it's from a bank, say it's a new credit card. And this credit card has a a better uh, cashback program than our current credit card has, or it's got a better interest rate, or like that kind of thing. And it's promising all these wonderful promises. Um, But I'll tell you, every, every single time that we've ever received a letter like that, We don't even open it, it goes right into the recycling pile. One, because we don't need a new credit card, and so it's practically, the promise is practically useless. But also, I think this also plays into it, whoever wrote that letter, whoever sent that card, we don't trust that person, to be totally honest. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to impugn their character, we don't know them, but their job is to send that letter and they have their own motives, that, which are not written down. Um, and it's, it, it's, there's, there's got to be a catch to this new credit card. And so it's just not worth it. And so again, it goes right in the recycling pile. We don't open it. We don't need it. It's practically useless. In stark contrast, though, over this last month, we have, I'm sure you have too, received a number of Christmas cards. Christmas cards, what are, what are those like? Well, if, you, if we receive a Christmas card, it doesn't go right to the recycling pile, we open it, we open the envelope, we pull it out, and we say, oh, this card came from so-and-so, and we haven't seen them in three years, look how, how big their kids have got. Uh, and on a Christmas card, there's usually a, let's be honest, a somewhat rote, rudimentary, same old, same old holiday greeting. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, season's greetings. The same kind that you get every year. But the interesting thing is when that message is pasted up on the backdrop of pictures of people that you love, it invests it with so much meaning. Merry Christmas means so much coming from our friends who live in the other side of the continent that we haven't seen in three or four years, but we love them, right? Especially if that banker person sent us a Christmas card, we wouldn't just say, okay, whatever, Merry Christmas to you too, you know? And, and that's, this is an illustration of how all communication is. Because communication has meaning invested in it, not just by the words that are spoken, but also by the nature of the relationships between uh, the people who are communicating. And that was true in in, 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 in this case as well, as Paul writes to the Philippians, our text this morning, you see, is all about the doctrine of perseverance, you could say. That's the content of, of this text. That, 
it's all about the promises of God to preserve and protect and keep us in our faith throughout whatever life brings. The the communication is theologically rich for sure, but it's also relationally rich. Because you see, Paul uh, wrote a bunch of different letters to a bunch of different churches, and we, we have records of some of them. Some of the churches he wrote to, he knew relatively little, but some of the churches he wrote it to, like this one, he knew well. He knew the people there. He had spent a great deal of time with the people there through important parts of their life as a church. And so that's why it's relationally rich. And so as we receive this word this morning, to be faithful to what it is, it's important that we not treat it like, uh, like a prison lunch line theology lesson. Oh, where, where, you know, we get, our, we get in line with a bunch of other people dressed the exact same way as us, and we're in a cold, maybe dark uh, cafeteria, and we shuffle along in line, and we make our way to the counter where the veteran soup slopper slops the soup of, 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 of theological um, sustenance into our cold metal bowl and says with a scowl, hey, cheer up. It's not going to taste very good, but it's going to be good for you. That's not what this experience should be like. Just like all of the other promises of God, these promises of God come to us gift-wrapped in love, and we, we enjoy them, we open them, we savor them as if we're sitting around a warm fire with our closest family and friends. This wonderful theology lesson comes not just to, to fill our heads with truth, but also to invest our lives with meaning, with joy, with praise, with thanks. That's what perseverance, that's what the doctrine of perseverance should do for us. To, to invest your life with joy and thanks. Uh, what a great way to end 2023 and move on into 2024 Lord willing. So that's, that, that, that's, that's our goal for this morning. And uh, we'll look at, at this text under three points. Paul's thankful prayer, uh, the gospel partnership of Paul and the Philippian church, and then what Paul says is the foundation of perseverance. So thankful prayer, gospel partnership, and the foundation of perseverance. So first of all, thankful prayer. Uh, the, the, the grammatical structure, if you want to get into Greek grammar, uh, of this passage, these three verses, three, four, or uh, four verses, I suppose, three, four, five, and six, it's very simple. Paul begins by saying, I give thanks. And, and, and really, in one way, that's the main thing he says. I give thanks. And then the rest of the passage is him explaining his thanksgiving talking about what he's thankful for and why he is thankful. So everything in, this, uh, in these uh, four verses is just all about his thanksgiving. And he almost always begins a letter uh, with this kind of section, talking about his thanksgiving, proclaiming his thanks, for, thanks to God for the church he's writing to. But if you were to compare Philippians to, uh, to the other letters that Paul writes, it's quite possible that Philippians, uh, his thanks for the Philippians is the most emphatic. Um, uh, commentators have actually made the observation that it's possible, from what we know, that the, the church in Philippi, at least when he was writing to them, was his favorite church. 
And Paul wasn't afraid to show it. So he, he says, and, and he doesn't talk this way about other churches and other letters. He says, and you can see it in verse 3 and 4, his thanks is to his God in all his remembrance, in every prayer, with joy at all times for all the Philippians. He's just overwhelmed with thanksgiving. He thinks about them and he, he puts a smile on his face. He, he does have a personal history with the Philippian church. You can, you can know some of that if you go to Acts 16. Um, where we learn about the beginnings of the church, and Paul was instrumental in that. And, and from the beginning, it seems that Philippi, uh, the church there, was a, an early Christian uh, success story. Uh, and th they were a healthy church, a, a church full of uh, grace and faith, and th they bore a lot of fruit. They were helpful for Paul and his ministry. And he's thankful for them. He's thankful for them. We don't want to rush to far beyond that. He's thankful for them. And before we go, <clears throat> before we go on, the, the rest of the sermon really is about what Paul is thankful for, what about the church he's thankful for. I think it's also interesting, though, to notice what he's not most thankful for about them. So, for example, uh, Paul does not mention that he's thankful for them because they're big and impressive <clears throat> or, or that their church is really important or filled with important people. He doesn't mention that they were doing a really good job of staying culturally relevant and staying up on all of the, the most recent uh, Roman cultural trends. He also doesn't congratulate them, by the way, on being very true to the Jewish traditions. Those kind of things, they, they matter, but they don't really matter to Paul. What he's thankful for transcends uh, ministry metrics and money and numbers and apparent influence, which are maybe some of the things that, at least in our context in America, we care about a little bit too much. He was thankful because in spite of the fact that there virtually was no cultural advantages, if anything, there were disadvantages to being a Christian, the Philippian church had gone all in on sacrificial love, hospitality, forgiveness, humility, and generosity. That was their lifestyle. That was their character. And it, it showed. Paul knew it. He felt it. He received that from them. They were a shining, brilliant demonstration of the light of Christ. And that's what made him thankful. That's what made him thankful. That's what a church is supposed to be. Uh, th that's, that's what Jesus intends. So that aside is just a little extra point for you. But let's, let's, without further ado, go on and talk about what specifically in that church Paul was thankful for. And, 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 and that moves us on to our second point, gospel partnership. This important idea of gospel partnership. And, and, and we're going to get this really from verse 5. Now where Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, that's describing his thankfulness. And so the, the word that Paul uses for partnership, uh, koinonia, uh, interestingly, on our drive up here, we notice there's another church in town called Koinonia Church. So this word is, uh, is, is recognized as important. You may have heard it before. It's a very common Greek word in the New Testament. It carries a lot of meaning with it, koinonia. Uh, here, it's translated as partnership. Um, it refers to an intimate relationship, one where there are mutual commitments. It's not just warm feeding, feelings, it's devoted action that is playing itself out over time. 
it's, it's, it's used sometimes to describe a good marriage. So this is like covenantal language. And Paul is thankful, not because the, the Philippian church are Facebook friends with him, not because they have a Facebook friend level relationship with Christ or the gospel, but because they're married to the gospel. They're married to Christ through the gospel. And it shows in their partnership with Paul. Uh, So a, a, a few things I think Paul would say makes up this gospel partnership. Okay, so gospel partnership comes through saving faith. Paul mentions the first day in that verse. And again, as I said earlier, he was there on the first day when this church became a reality. Uh, If if you remember from Acts 16, uh, by a work of the Spirit, Paul and his companions are sort of compelled to go a different direction than they wanted to. And they went to Philippi, and they found a few uh, believers, a handful of them, uh, praying all these faithful Jews, it seemed, that, that, that wanted more, and they explained the gospel to them, and they became believers, and this started the, the first Christian church in Philippi. And th- they were faithful. They were faithful believers, and their, and their faith grew, and the church slowly grew. And Paul remembers those days with thanks and praise as he writes to the Philippian church. The first day is a joyful day, a beautiful day day. But a gospel partnership doesn't end with the first day. It continues uh, f- until now, Paul says also here in verse 5. Um, it indicates that there's been growth, that ever since that first day, they've continued in the faith up until now. It, it makes me think about John chapter 15, that, that image that Jesus uses to describe life with him, that, that, that we are the branch or we are branches on his vine, and a branch connected to the vine in a healthy way will bear fruit. So God has saved you so that you would draw life from Christ and grow more and more and more in your faith, in your knowledge of him, in your devotion to him, in, 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 in your fruitfulness, in your fruit. And that basically means in, in your faith, in your love, and in your good works. And the evidence that Something has changed in you because of Christ. And, and, and what this gospel partnership also looks like is a ministry partnership, particularly. Saving faith and, and fruit becomes particular in a local church. It, it becomes particular in the specific ways that you are serving your community. Paul is thankful for the Philippian spiritual growth and he sees it because of the ways that they are being fruitful And not just in their own community, but as their fruitfulness grows beyond it. You see, so if you read through as we did, verse 7 and following, Paul continues to explain his thankfulness. And then even more so, at the end of chapter 2, he gets specific and talks about a man by the name of Epaphroditus, who was one of the Philippian elders or pastors, apparently, and the Philippian church sent away one of their leaders to go to Paul and provide for him in prison with gifts that they purchased and paid for at their own expense. And they sent their their leader to him in a risky situation to go visit Paul in prison and bring him this probably life-sustaining and certainly ministry-sustaining stuff. Paul relied on the churches he had relationships with for his very life and ministry. And he's saying, Philippians, you did this for me. 
And I'm thankful. So here's the point. A partnership with Christ in the gospel leads to partnerships with other believers in gospel ministries through the church, and that's what Jesus uses to sustain and spread the church, his kingdom, throughout the world. This doesn't have to be a spectacular thing. We don't have in the New Testament an expectation of you must grow this much in this amount of time. It can be small. It can be seemingly uh, invisible, really, or invisible. But that growth happens according to Christ's plan and timetable and process. It begins in our hearts as he changes us and in our community as he changes us collectively and we grow. And, and, and it really should be an upward trajectory of faith in Christ bearing fruit upward and onward as we continue our journey, faith bearing fruit. However, this may lead to a slight dissonance in your experience. Uh, and, 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 and it relates to something called assurance. Assurance of salvation. Um, let me explain that a little bit. So we're talking about perseverance. At least we, we will be very soon. Perseverance, the theology that God preserves and protects and progresses your faith. He's, the dri- he's in the driver's seat of this process of faith-bearing fruit all the way to the end. And assurance, so if, if, if that's um, perseverance, assurance is our subjective, often subjective, uh, felt um, sense of the fact that we do truly belong to God and that God will be faithful to continue and complete this work in us. So perseverance is God's work. Assurance is us being confident that he is working in us. So here's the question. Is it possible to have true assurance if your experience of your faith in Christ, or maybe even the, 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 the experience of your church recently, or your life recently, is not an upward trajectory? Is it possible to have assurance if you're not progressing? Because the reality is, we often struggle to make any progress. Yeah, suffering, let's, let's think about that. Suffering brings uh, doubts uh, that might sap our joy. Maybe it's a, a sinful habit in your life. And other Christians around you, maybe they, they look so alive, they look like they're not struggling in the same way that you are, but you feel like you are. The trajectory of your life is not going upward, but spiraling out of control. So again, suffering. And I don't, I don't want to say this lightly because I know that th- there have probably been some really painful things that have happened to us collectively or maybe some of you individually, but what have you been deeply wounded by in 2023 that you haven't got over yet, maybe you won't get over for years? Something like that. And if you think about it, probably there's something like that in this last year. Whatever that is, whether you notice it or not, it's bound to affect your sense of safety and security in God and in the gospel. 
you wonder, why did God let this happen? How can I have joy if I also have to live now with this loneliness, with this sense of loss and grief and just confusion because of this part of my life that has been wrecked? So suffering can really harm assurance. But also uh, sin can harm assurance. It can wreck your, uh, your, your sense of Christian identity. Why? Well, let's be brave enough to be honest for a moment. Probably all of us in this room, to some degree, are hiding something. Um, some sinful habit, addiction, practice. Maybe we don't even realize it most of the time. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. Uh, most of us are sitting here pretending like we're not struggling with anger towards our kids, whether they're very small or grown. Um, may, maybe you're sitting there pretending like you're not emotionally manipulative sometimes with your spouse or friends. Some of you are sitting there pretending like you don't ever struggle with lust or even pornography or something like that. Some of you are sitting there pretending like you don't hate your boss or our president or governor. You know, these kinds of things that don't usually come with us, we, we at least don't wear them on our sleeves at church, but they come out. They come out of our hearts. It's sin. It's sinfulness. It's, it's wrong. We, we, we know that it's against God's law, and it certainly doesn't line up with our Christian faith, but it's so hard, for some reason, it's so hard, it shouldn't be, right? It, it feels like it shouldn't be, but it's so hard to grow past that. It's so hard to, to develop real righteousness in these areas where we struggle. And we can feel like a walking contradiction. We feel alone. There's surely no one else who struggles this much with this terrible thing. How can God even look at us? How could he look at me? How could I have assurance that I'm actually his child if I'm such a mess? How? I believe that Paul knew that even the Philippian church needed to know how, and that's why he wrote verse 6. Okay, so as we come to verse 6, which is a very well-known verse, some of you have it memorized, I'm sure, we need to feel how uh, how, how amazing this is. Verse 6 really is, this is our third point, the foundation of our, uh, not only our assurance, but it's the foundation of perseverance. The foundation of perseverance. You see, Paul begins and he says, I'm sure of this. And when he says, I'm sure of this, it's not just wishful thinking. He's not saying, you know, Philippians, I know you pretty well, you're pretty good, you're pretty good Christians, above average for sure, and I'm sure well, at least I'm pretty sure, that you're going to continue to the end. So keep going. He's actually firmly convinced that they will be saved, that their good work will stay the course, that nothing can change, nothing in all the world can change that. And how? Again, it's, it's how, how can he be so sure? How can we be so sure of such a thing? Well, it's actually really simple. It's, it, it's, it's so simple. It's too simple, almost. It's really simple. The reason he is so sure, and it, it's right in the wording of verse 6. 
It's not because he's focusing really on their good works. Paul's focus is on the one who's doing the work. He's not saying, I'm sure your work will persevere, although in a sense he is. It's deeper than that. He says, I'm sure Christ's work will persevere. I'm sure Christ will continue to come through for you. Do you see that shift? It's not on them. The focus is on Christ. Let's think about that. Why is it so important that we take our focus off of us, off of what we're doing, off of our struggles, and place them on Jesus? It's because of who he is and, 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 and what his relationship is like with us and what he has done for us. Okay, so the one who is at work in you is Christ, the incarnate one. Right? We've been celebrating. We've been anticipating. And now it's here. We can celebrate Christmas, the, 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 the season of Christ being incarnate as one of us. Ever since that O Holy Night, Christ is one of us. The, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth so that we could see the glory of the Father. Out of love, God sent His Son to save us. Not to condemn the world, but so that the world through him and we can be saved. The light has come in Christ. Because of our sin, because of our suffering, the word needed to become our flesh, and he did to save us. That's why he came. So we can rejoice even in the darkest days of the year. The one who is at work in you is Christ, the incarnate one. Also, the one who is at work in you is Christ crucified, the crucified one. He came as a human being, as a man, to die for us. You know, I, I said this a couple minutes ago, our, our struggle with assurance comes from seeing our own sin and we feel the tension of who in Christ we should be and, 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 and who we continue to seem to be in our sin. And in my own story, I remember a, a, a number of years ago when I was in the midst of a, a, an intense battle with a particular sinful habit um, that was self-destructive, really. It was, it, it, was, it was a big problem for me. And it was that kind of thing that I could hide from everyone else. But I, I remember laying awake one night um, in, in, in turmoil in my, in my soul, just because I, I knew who I was supposed to be, but I wasn't that in reality, and I just felt like, who am I? Who am I? God, I can't keep living like this. I literally can't keep living like this. What, what's, what's going to happen? Is there anyone in here right now that feels that way? I wonder. If that's you, you don't need self-improvement strategies. You need something deeper. You don't need willpower to overcome your sinful weakness. Throw the New Year's resolution that deals with that into the Puget Sound. It's not going to help you. You need to look at the cross. You need to see what Christ did there. The cross is the place of deliverance and nowhere else. And I get that phrase, place of deliverance, actually from uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with the story. Um, uh, a, a, a picture book version for kids of that is actually uh, our oldest daughter's favorite book right now. 
Um, she, she, she loves going through that. And, 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 and the images of, of when uh, Pilgrim, early on in his journey, it, it, by the way, Pilgrim's Progress, if you're not familiar, is an allegory, allegorical tale of a, 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 a person named Christian. And he begins in the city of destruction and learns of, of the reality. But there's this king in this city far away who has invited him to the feast. And so he, he, he works up the courage to start along the journey. And, and, and he leaves everything behind and he's going, but he's carrying this heavy burden on his back, right? And er, early on in his journey, he comes to this place where there's a cross. And the most amazing thing happens at the cross. This terrible, heavy burden that he's been carrying all along, and he's afraid, how is he going to get the rest of the way with this burden on his back? When he sees the cross, he realizes what it means. It's the place where the king came to die for him. In faith, he looks to the cross, and he believes in the promises of the king, and the burden falls off. And he leaves the burden in the dust, and he goes and embraces the cross. That's what it is. That's, that's, that's the power that the cross, that knowing that Jesus came to die for you and take away your sin, that's the power it can have in your struggle with assurance. And your, 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 your feelings of guilt over the sin that's in your life. The one at work in you is the one who set up this place of deliverance that you can go back to again and again. And if you've, especially if you've never been there, there's nothing stopping you from having every burden of guilt removed. So run to the cross. Uh, the one who is at work in you is also the risen Christ. The risen Christ. Uh, I, I was actually telling um, a Taylor earlier, or just mentioning that uh, I, I went to seminary and in Philadelphia. Uh, and, and in Philadelphia, unlike here, uh, there are buildings, um, some houses even, that are over 100 years old, over 200 years old. There are some that are even 300 years old. These buildings that are, were clearly made in a different era, but they're still standing. Some of them even, you know, people, people live in them are, and are in use. Um, and it's really impressive to see a building that, that, that's that old. And, and the question that you might have is, how does a building last that long? How does it stand for that long? And really, the, 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 the reason it does is because of the craftsmanship of the builder. Uh, so the original builder uh, put blood, sweat, and tears and a meticulous work into the laying of every stone and the foundation, every beam and rafter and post is true and level and plumb and in place perfectly. And if, if, it's not, if that wasn't so, the building would have fallen down a long time ago. But it stands to this day because it's not shoddy craftsmanship. It will withstand the storms of life. It is firm. The foundation, the structure is firm. And through the resurrection, that is the kind of life that Jesus has built. That's the kind of life that Jesus possesses now. Through his death, he tore down our old, derelict, condemned lives. And he has built up, through his resurrection, a life of perfect righteousness and joy. So that in, in that moment, if you can imagine it, when the, the, his body that was formerly dead, put to death because of our sin, 
In, in resurrection, he, he, he breathed in air to his glorified lungs and stood up on resurrected feet and walked out of the cold, dark tomb into the light of a new day. In that moment, he's, it's like he's hammering the last nail into a perfect structure. Jesus' life, think of it this way, he's like the model home of the new creation. And ever since, ever since he's built that perfect home, he's been building homes like it ever since. He's been at work doing that, including you and me and this church and other churches. Over and over and over again, the New Testament teaching is that if you trust Christ, that is what he's doing to you and for you and in you. Nothing less than that. He is the one at work in you. You have been raised with him. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He has rebuilt you. He is rebuilding you. Whatever your weakness, whatever your sin, whatever your struggle, he is rebuilding you. You can trust him. He will not leave the job site until it's done. Finally, I, I want to give you a bonus one, a bonus sub-point, okay, as your late Christmas gift, a bonus sub-point. But, but this one, in some ways, this is the best one. Um, the one who is at work in you is the one who right now is interceding for you, okay? Um, interceding means he's praying for you. The book of Hebrews explicitly tells us that like a, a great high priest, whose ministry never fails, Jesus is praying for his people right now. And so, and so when you think of Jesus, he's, he's uh, resurrected and ascended, enthroned in heaven, sit, seated at the right hand of God in glory and splendor. Uh, it, it's, it, it's as though he is, he, 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 his face is towards the Father, looking at the Father, enjoying the presence of his Father again. And the Father is looking at Jesus in this amazing, uh, fully restored and perfect relationship between the God-man, the Redeemer, Jesus, and God the Father. And you are on Jesus' mind. And you are on the Father's mind. Partially because you're on Jesus' mind. And he's praying to the Father for you. And when you think of what that prayer must be like, I hope you're not thinking it's something like, oh, Father, the, those... Those, those, those sheep down there, those, those believers, they're, they're pretty hard to shepherd. These ones, wow, I, I, I don't know how much longer I can keep going with, with these people. That's not at all what Jesus is like. That's not what that scene is like in heaven. What a, what a wet blanket, what a downer that would be. That's not at all what the scene in heaven is like right now. The, the intercession of Jesus to the Father for you right now, I think looks a lot more like the thankful praise that Paul had for the Philippian church. Maybe the way that Paul prayed for the Philippian church is a faint glimpse of what it is like for Jesus to be praying to the Father for us. In heaven right now, Jesus is praying to the Father for you, and he thanks his Father every time he remembers you in all his prayers. For all of you, he always makes prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
And can you imagine this? He is sure, Jesus right now is sure of this, that he will complete the good work that he started in you. He's sure of it. He's sure of it. That is the definitive proof you need to know that you will persevere to the end. That is the definitive proof you need to to step into 2020, to leap into 2024 with joy. Because you have a high priest praying for you right now who will not leave you, he will not forsake you, his work is perfect, and he will complete it. He will complete it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, incarnate one, crucified one, resurrected one, glorified one, uh, the, the, the one who loves us, the one who redeems us and returns us to the family of God, the one who sent your spirit to be with us. We thank you, first of all, but we also pray that you would help us in light of our sin and our suffering to endure. We know that your help is sure, but we also know that it is sure and it is steadfast and it will continue and it, it will remain true because of this word containing these promises that you've given to us. And so would you right now In the hearts of these people, in all of our hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would bring joy and thankfulness and praise and peace because of what you have done. And may we put our faith in you and in you alone, because that is the only place it can and should and needs to be. We pray this all in your great name. Amen.